Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast at the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. Joined today by Alexander Kotovic, Jaroslawski, and Luca Bertoletti. Special episode from our retreat in Tbilisi, Georgia. And guys, uh, first of all, I wanted to talk about the news of the week, and that is the US dollar and the euro are worth the same. Last time that happened was in 2002. And um, well, I mean, it's good for some people, bad for others. I, I would say thank you, Joe Biden. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. What, any thoughts on this, on this historic moment? I'm actually going to take this mic now. Um, actually, Bill, you say since two, uh, 2002, but the euro was yes in circulation, but actually not being used at that time. So it was sort of the pre-mine, uh, to use a nice crypto term, it was the pre-mine that we had parity. We've gotten close in the past, always uh, not in a way that advantages me as an American who goes you know, back and forth between Europe and the rest, but uh, we have the inflation time. So I would say as people who deal in USD, if you happen to have dollars, um, I guess you can keep them and I guess you can do some good stuff in Europe. But overall, uh, you know, inflation is pushing prices up everywhere. So I'm not sure uh, it's, it's not the best times to celebrate, but interesting. It's, uh, I agree with you, it's not the best time to celebrate. And since you are in circulation, that's never been parity. Uh, but it's actually a big problem for Europe right now because most of the European countries buy commodities in dollars and not in euro, so the commodities will be higher and the price of consumer will be higher, so inflation will skyrocket in, uh, in Europe. And um, most of the exportation actually will be uh, made in Europe, so it will actually mean you will have some problem with exporting your products to US or other places because we have this way, we have things that we buy in commodities in Europe, in dollars, and we export in Europe. So, Luca, you're saying for the people who have short-term gains with Sorry. this, there will be long-term losses. Yeah, we, and actually even worse is that we are not planning to um, raise the interest rate at ECB level. If not 0.25, probably end of July, but we are not really sure, we are still discussing. While um, the Fed already raised, Bank of England already raised quite a lot, actually, Fed did 0.75 for the first time in ages. Bank of England is almost 1% interest rate now, mm -hmm. uh, which obviously can help to downgrade the inflation. And uh, Europe is still using uh, zero or minus per, uh, interest rate, so it's going to be an interesting time in Europe, I would say. It must. It must also give a Coco. Uh, uh, must give you pause because I mean, all the people who 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 said for so long that um, the the crypto space is so speculative turns out and and, and unstable. Turns out that uh, the regular fiat currencies have their own part in that too, uh, and people speculating on on currencies and making money by holding certain currencies also exists in the fiat space. What do you What are your thoughts on? And sort of uh, I think it goes along with everything that we're seeing happening in the economy uh, all over the place for the last <coughs> for the last couple of couple of months maybe longer uh, but I also think it's kind of gives us a good insight into what would be happening if uh, the idea that many of the the countries are playing with it or exploring at the moment the idea of central bank as digital currencies CBdc's would look like so if it would be so much easier for a retail consumer to be trading in currencies all the time uh, i think that could uh, that could uh, spiral this even more in the future so just imagine if we had if we had a central bank 
uh, digital currency, let's say a euro or a dollar, which uh, you could trade on, on these kinds of, uh, of news all the time. Uh, I think the, the implications of that would be, would be enormous and we would probably be seeing more of this. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree. Uh, I don't think there's, except stable coins, there's nothing that's stable at the but, moment. But, but I, on that point, are you saying it would be a good thing because it would create transparency? I'm saying it would, I mean, uh, it would create transparency, but it would also create many issues with like, if they went to, to um, actually have CBDCs, which I, we spoke about this, I think, the last time or against that, of course. But if they did that, I think we would see even bigger fluctuations and more, it would happen more, um, more commonly that, that um, people would be trading uh, CBDCs or currencies in a way that uh, that would uh, make them unstable, but obviously reaching some price that's that's probably more adapted to to the situation at the at point. Luca, you wanted to jump in on uh, yeah, what, currencies yeah, well, on both actually. So one of the main idea of creating euro uh, was to don't have this trading currency anymore. I mean, Italy said in 1992 because of the speculation on lira. Uh, Spain almost did the same with pesos uh, going skyrocketing from one night to another. So the idea why most of the southern European countries joined Euro was actually to stop the speculation. And clearly ECB, let's say ECB had three main uh, pillars, which is 2% uh, inflation rate, no speculation on Euro, and uh, be able to have uh, a job market in the Eurozone, stable job market, and I think it's failing in the three of them. One of the main problems with central bank, uh, this central bank actually is uh, weaponizing the currency. So on, right now you cannot actually say you cannot buy with, I don't know, sugar, to make an example, with uh, your dollars. You are allowed to buy whatever you want. Uh, if we create a digital currency, it would be super easy to say you cannot actually buy sugar with uh, your digital currency anymore so basically you outlaw so uh, like a paternalistic aspect to so it's nudging or it's uh, even worse than paternalistic it's actually weaponizing like if you have or instead of approving a law uh, saying okay sugar is banned i'm making an example of sugar but it can be any other products uh, you just say you cannot buy it anymore with a digital currency yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm sure you have thoughts on this because, I mean, on the whole custodial versus non-custodial cash versus having your money in the bank and now the digital currencies, what else, um, what's your view? Well, we have to look at uh, particularly the examples of the countries that are currently undergoing huge crises, particularly when it comes to foreign currency reserves and how that works. And we're seeing the collapse of Sri Lanka in real time. And with, with that, you know, what we saw there is they built up a lot of debts in foreign currencies, they were not able to pay those off. And essentially, when the credit ratings agencies come after you and start you know, downranking you, uh, things can get pretty hectic. And then prices going through the roof, and uh, you commit to 100% organic uh, agriculture, which I know you love talking about, Bill. That's a big deal. But yeah, custodial versus non-custodial. Not a big fan of any type of currency that a government would control and print and run. I think that's likely many of the economists that uh, I know I'm a fan of, perhaps you guys as well, have been telling us for a long time. When you have the monopolization of money just by a state, it plays to the interests of the state. So it's about ballooning the power of the state, ballooning the 
power of the governments in terms of spending money, building big projects, and when we have this entire new space that's separate from that, it actually allows sovereignty of money. And we haven't necessarily had that before. We had a good run, I think, with gold, and uh, we saw that you know, in all the times of war, that's why the governments would, would try to seize the gold from the citizens. They would make sure that you could not convert uh, your currency into gold anymore. And uh, the, I guess the bigger question to ask, Bill, is what happened in 1971? <laughs> well, I mean, we 1971, gold standard, right? Uh, right. Gold completely delinked from the U.S. dollar exchangeability. Yeah. Which was actually I'm, I'm, I'm glad I didn't embarrass myself here. The 1971 date. Uh, I think you mentioned it a bit too often at this point, Yal. So we we know. Um, so on on that note, um, Coco, I wanted to bring this up because you mentioned that there's. Uh, a few updates here on the MICA file in the European Union. So just to very briefly remind for those listeners who don't know exactly what the issue here is with the crypto space in MICA, what is this all about? Right, so um, MICA, Markets and Crypto Assets <coughs> legislation, which the EU has been working on and talking about for the last couple of couple of months for actually a long period. Uh, the, whole, the whole process lasted for two to three years almost. And then on June 30th, they finally agreed on the final version of how this is actually going to be, uh, be looking at. And the, its main goals are basically to harmonize the EU market, to create some regulatory certainty, which is actually very interesting because EU is now kind of trying to be on, um, be one of the first who is actually bringing one of these comp such a such a comprehensive bill that's basically going to be creating some regulatory certainty both for the industry and for for the consumers in the european union um their stated goals is also to improve uh improve uh, consumer protection and kind of strengthen the the financial stability um but we'll see what's uh how, how that is actually going to look so uh, there's some some things are not as bad as we expected them to be uh when when we're talking about mica so for instance DeFi or decentralized finance is not specifically regulated by this but they said that, that they're going to be talking about it in the next 12 to 18 months so they're going to be doing another study and another set of reports uh things that uh that uh such as non-fungible tokens or nfts are not regulated through mica and it's they're out of the scope uh, of this bill even though the fractionalized nfts are not so they are included but we also saw a lot of things that we dislike um very very much and some of these include something that uh, we like to call custodial or non-custodial wallets and uh, we have been seeing a lot of these double speak where uh, they, they have been using the wor words such as unhosted wallets, um, where um, the idea is that um, centralized um, crypto asset providers, uh, so basically the exchanges, will be required um, to um, confirm that each of the wallets that is doing any kind of transaction in and or out uh, from the exchange, from each of the private citizens, for any amount of money uh, will have to be... Um, uh, basically connected and confirmed that that person is actually using that wallet. So uh, that's that's one of the things. Um, we are kind of still, it's a 700 page long, uh, long document and there's, right. there's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things that it includes, but I think that um, we're going to be seeing how, how this is actually going to be coming, coming 
Yeah, so I mean, it just just for the for the listeners who might not be in this too much, the, the difference between the custodian and non-custodian is essentially between having your money in the bank and having your money in cash. And so for the cash people, so people who own the, the keys to their, their own uh, cryptocurrencies, um, does anything change for them? Are they at risk of not being able to use their um, their, their their assets in the future? Will there be a ban on those wallets? I mean. Practically, it wouldn't be possible as far as I understand anyway. That is true. Um, one of the great things about Bitcoin, but also some of the other cryptocurrencies is that are kind of uncensorable. So it's it's very hard to do that. Uh, and a relatively good thing is that Mica is currently not doing anything regarding the transaction, peer-to-peer -peer transactions. So the two of us could send each other um, Bitcoin uh, without any, any kind of KYC mm. or knowing your customer. Yeah, and, and I think, and I think, uh, Luca, even though uh, you don't chime in too often on on the crypto uh, conversation, I think with giving companies and in this case exchanges sort of a um, an understanding of like what the regulatory framework will be, that is also what we're trying to do in the digital, the, yeah. the sort of the digital single market, digital payments union, giving companies the idea that okay, like if you do whether you do it in Lithuania or Malta, there's sort of a kind of a, a bottom line as to what the rules are. So actually, uh, I'm not entering the specification of uh, Michael because I don't know it and I'm not into the crypto field. But like, as an example of what European Union can do for the digital single market is actually an amazing example. For the first time, European Union was able to agree on the ground base of the uh, of the legislation. It can be good and bad. And uh, all of the member states eventually will need to implement in them in, in the national law. Obviously, it will be very different how Italy will implement it compared to Lithuania or compared to Malta, but at least you have a ground rule. Or if it, it will be implemented at all. But eventually it will. After 10 years, 20 years, whatever it will. But uh, it's fun because we are able to do on the crypto where most likely out of 800 MEPs, I want to be conservative, so let's say 600 uh, do not know what crypto space is, and we are not able to do on the digital single market when it comes to audiovisual. Uh, so it's actually a very interesting discussion to have. Maybe we can have it more in another episode, but like why we are able to do it in crypto and not able to do it in something that everyone really expects us audiovisual. Uh, yeah, it seems it seems that the audiovisual sector has been around for a while, and crypto there seems to be for them like sort of an urgency to do something before it gets whatever politicians call out of hand. Is that is that is that the reason? I mean, one of the one of the things that I wanted to add to, to what Luca was saying is that we are already seeing national legislations trying to to uh, uh, get their own angle on this, and the European Central Bank actually just issued a warning to national uh, na na national uh, legislators that they are actually trying to prevent them to get ahead of the MICA bill, right? So th what, they do not, what they do not want is that the national states or the nation states are kind of bringing their own... Uh, to not have too much divergence between individuals. Right, exactly. States, right, okay, all right. Anything, anything you wanted to add here, Yal? Because I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts. Oh, I mean, uh, I know that the European Union loves to champion uh, their uh, specific uh, regulatory prowess um, as if this is the most important thing right now, when really all people need is legal certainty. And I think what the European Union has done through this process is that it really adds instability to this entire project because 
I know that there's a lot of, of different arguments about the power of the national governments, the member states versus the supranational institutions at the EU level. And I understand that there's a lot of great things that are happening, particularly on the single market and digital space. Uh, but when it comes to at least the crypto stuff, it just seems that nobody, nobody really understands. It's a bit too complicated. Most of the people who, I mean, it's the classic uh, Baptist and bootleggers um, scenario where you have a lot of regulators that might be captured or perhaps they're promoting the interest of one particular company or of another. And that's why for us, our mission is consumer choice and making sure that individuals can use this. It's not about institutions. You know, we don't need to have all these rules and understandings just so that company A can survive. It's so that everybody can use it and can use it properly and can access it and has the ability to do so and to participate because realistically, this is not about just you know, another commodity that you buy and you make a lot of money with. This is actually financial inclusion. You know, people who are not able to get normal bank accounts, people who have to send money to other countries because they have relatives or uh, because they have retired parents and they're trying to, you know, pay caretakers or someone who might have migrated from another country. I mean, it's, there's not enough focus on the financial inclusion aspect of all of this and it gets caught up in just the institutional rulemaking and it makes it less likely that uh, average people, whether it be in the Republic of Georgia or Moldova or, or you know, different parts of Italy are going to be able to use this technology. And uh, I imagine there's, there's a lot of listeners who are thinking about um, the, the current crypto situation and just the fact that we've had several huge events uh, in, in the industry, uh, which uh, brought on some uncertainty and a lot of uh, bearish sentiments on the market. But it's important to note, I think, that uh, even if, so MICA as it is at the moment would not have prevented pretty much anything that we have seen during this couple of, last couple of two or three months uh, that were the biggest drivers of, of this, let's say, uh, so-called crypto crash. So basically, uh, the I guess the four important things there that, that, ha that have happened have been the UST collapse, so the Terra Luna um, stablecoin collapse, then we had the uh, Anchor collapse, so basically that's uh, a DeFi protocol. We have had Celsius, uh, the lending protocol, and we have had a 3AC, which is basically an institutional hedge fund uh, that uh, that went under. And uh, it would, for 90, 95% of the, the EU customers, uh, MICA would not have done anything in that in that regard. Celsius might might not have been able to to provide their services to some of the EU customers or UST would not be listed on some of the European exchanges mm -hmm. but as we know that's uh, that's something that uh, would not still would not have saved or would not have made situation that much uh, that much better mm, so a lot of things coming together there Luca any, any thoughts on yeah no, uh, I agree with Coco it would not have prevented but in the European mind and here maybe it's the advocates of the devil it would have prevented consumers to lose their money. Like, if, if, especially when it comes to exchange, so Chelsea's they would have uh, acted like a bank, so they have to have a reserve to be able to pay out uh, their consumer. I mean, there's. I mean, we do have fractional reserve banking also in the existing banking system, and, and I mean, the the yeah, guarantee yeah. of a hundred thousand euros is also just very theoretical. If the banking system well, actually were to really, collapse, I'm not really sure. Really, no. I mean, uh, coming from a country where at least seven banks have uh, collapsed in the last few years, everyone got paid out. So, but I mean, and um, coming from again. Coming from a country where we had seven collapses in the last ten years. Just uh, as a reminder. 
As a reminder, Luca, the reserve requirements for euro area banks uh, are currently at one uh, percent. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is. Uh, I find it a bit low. I mean, also like Italy. Also, you mentioned the lira earlier. I mean, wasn't it at one point that the lira was so low that if you melted the coins, you would you got more money from the metals than yeah, you would from. Oh, okay, fair enough. Well, any currency, any currency has uh, indeed uh, instability. But I wanted to, I wanted to move to the last topic before we. Were, I don't, I don't know, not exactly sure where we are on time, but oh, perfectly on time because I wanted to talk about this, and I think this is where we probably uh, agree, all of us, and that is the uh, the Uber files. So for those of you who have followed this uh, in the news, this is particularly big a topic in France. And that is the supposed undue influence of the company Uber, the ride-sharing provider, and also actually food delivery company by now, very, very big as well, um, that uh, has tried to convince policymakers all around the continent uh, to uh, loosen their rules on Uber and uh, does so by having by cozying up to politicians all around the continent. Uh, nothing particularly new that I saw uh, in there. Um, I'm pretty sure you followed the French conversation a little bit as well. Yeah, what are your thoughts here on those Uber files? Well, what we see from, uh, so to, to paint the story, uh, you have the essentially the top lobbyist of Uber uh, between the years of 2012 and 2016, I believe. So Mark McGann. Uh, he was uh, the one who basically was in charge of reaching out to the governments and trying to implement some type of regulatory structure that they could implement and, you know, they could deploy the cars and make sure that the apps are working and the networks and recruiting drivers. And he is the whistleblower in this instance. Uh, work, I mean, it's very worthy to note that he also had his own lawsuits against Uber and there's probably perverse incentives there. Uh, but what he quote-unquote exposed in the Guardian piece is basically that you have this great innovative company that is going up against a very old-school paternalistic regulatory model and trying to overcome it and uh, many people are outraged by this but you know this is the age of disruption it's the age of technology there's going to be um, an uber every decade there's going to be an uber uh, basically in every market there's going to be these innovative you know, platforms that come along and we don't have the existing rules for, but it shouldn't cause a panic. The best thing to do is for these political systems to learn how to adapt or have the rules be so simple that people can innovate and people can take risks. And, you know, you're looking at a large global company that, uh, while the numbers might seem big, realistically have never really run a profit, yet we're supposed to be outraged by this. I mean, there's a reason why we don't have a European Google. There's a reason why there is no European Meta. It's the regulatory regime, the old school, the trade unions, the existing system, and just the difficulty uh, with bringing an innovation to the market to consumers is so difficult. That's the real story of this. I don't think the Uber files about you know talking to Macron's office or trying to you know have the the drivers that you recruit do X and Y. I, I think it's just an innovative company being met by an old, paternalistic, you know, old Europe system. 
And, and, and by the way, speaking of that, I really did enjoy uh, Macron's reaction recently. He had a sort of a doorstep interview and he said that, well, I talk to uh, business leaders all uh, around the country and, you know, these people come to France and they create, they create jobs and I would do this again and I would do this again tomorrow. Uh, Luca, any thoughts on the, on the yeah, Uber files? I, I think it's, uh, it's fantastic. Like, it's totally irrelevant also for being the lobbyist is a job. So you can meet with policymakers all the time. You are registered. Uber is registered. Most of the companies, lobbying companies. So I mean, they hire lobbyists. Second, I would fire. So there were no suitcases of money. I would fire the lobbyists because I don't think we want any of this Uber file uh, legislation. But we want it. I mean, they are outlawed in most of the countries. So they are very good restrictions in most of the countries. So not very good lobbyists on the other side. Uh, uh, so I think it's not a send. I mean, I don't understand the scandal here because it's something that uh, all of the companies are saying. It's one company fighting against another lobby group, which is the taxi, and the taxi, most of the country, taxi won. So I don't really see where is the scandal. I mean, honestly, I think it's really just a sandcastle. Where is the scandal? Where is the problem? I mean, ultimately, ultimately, what we ended up with in most of Europe is sort of the uh, both the taxi licenses and the VTC rules. Um, Which, honestly, uh, especially uh, in some part of Europe, I think about Italy, uh, back to back past the I mean, in Italy, Uber is actually outlawed. You have just an NCC, so you just have a black card, right. which is way too expensive. My friends on the land side is 300 euros, that's way too much. Uh, so, I, but especially given some criminal organizations, especially in the south of Italy, that were basically running Uber drivers, uh, I would have agreed on that VLC, uh, the taxi license, but like, they even didn't, were able to get that. They just right. got out long. I mean, I mean, criminal organizations also get involved in, in, in the taxis as well. I, I would I would say that maybe maybe Luca is, is not on my side here, but I would say Uber Pop was great. I'm not sure, uh, Coco, if you have any thoughts on this. Do you remember the times of Uber Pop where you just had just a dude pick you up, like just a guy in his car? Wasn't that sort of the beauty of the whole system yeah, in the so first place? Isn't that uh, what you do on a taxi driver in Belgrade usually? Almost. Uber is not in Belgrade. You live in Belgrade, and, and, and the cargo is, is. Does that work in that way? Is it just a guy with his own car? It is not. I mean, in, in the early days, it was very similar to Uber Pop, but then obviously they put a stop to that. First of all, I really loved the idea of Uber Pop, and to me, that was the. Like everything after that, it's fine, but it's still very much in the vein of like same old services that we've had. Uh, that we've had in the past. Belgrade is no difference. I mean, uh, it's a very, very much of a license system, and anyone living in Belgrade can tell you how hard was it was, and it is, for the last six months, seven months, eight months, to get a ride. Uh, if you want to get a ride on a Saturday night, good luck. You're probably going to spend an hour and then decide that you, it's better for you to walk home. And the reason for this is the, the limited number of licenses. Uh, for taxi drivers, which uh, is currently, the licensing system is such that there's currently around... 5,800 uh, licenses, and they're, they have this plan of uh, kind of like uh, steadily increasing it, uh, but the increase is just not enough to, uh, to do this. And um, cargo did fill some of that void, uh, so that, that is the Serbian equivalent of, an, of Uber, but um, the market is still not 
not functioning as as it should. You've sort of you've sort of improvised an Uber Pop system. Sometimes I see you on Twitter tweeting out an address. Can you tell the listeners about exactly how that works? Does did you tweet out an address to have somebody pick you up? Is that because I, I I've seen that with Serbs doing that in Belgrade. <laughs> tweeting out an address and then be like, hey, pick me up here. Does that, does yeah. that work? Yeah, I, I wish I wish it was as exciting, but it, it's basically you just tweeted to a taxi company in the same oh, way. Oh, it's just a taxi like, company. Oh, I thought I, it was I'm sorry, it's, 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 an, it's underwhelming. <laughs> yes, okay, that's that. But the fact that you can just tweet and don't spend up another <laughs> X4, that's really great. I mean, I don't know how I'd feel about it from a privacy perspective, tweeting out the address where I'm currently at. Oh, but definitely. I mean, people used to do that when they checked into Facebook. Well, the, the whole point of it, and what's, I think, the broader point is that it forced many of the taxi companies to innovate. Because the whole point is not just that people were fed up with taxis. People were fed up with only being able to use cash, with not being able to use your phone for a more precise location, for the taxi drivers taking you, you know, around about so that you, they can charge a bit more. So this the kind of, yeah, well. this idea of using the app means that there's a precise tracking system, you know, exactly where you're supposed to go, you know, exactly the route you're supposed to have. And, you know, the taxi companies that fought that, I think, were, is a huge loss for consumers. But, you know, it, it has allowed this new space where, you know, now there are good taxi companies that allow you to, you know, book on the app. There's, uh, I think it's free now. Free now, free now is, is able to do that. I mean, if you look at mo most of the taxi companies, they're not good with this. I mean, the apps they use, they're, they're not. Um, um, I think website is a win. I mean, I don't know in Netherlands that or Belgium, but like in uh, Spain, in Italy, in Greece, every taxi company has, has uh, an app. And it actually sometimes works even better than the Uber app, because Uber app has this very weird bug on iPhone that the address is never correct one for some reason. <laughs> and I, I think that's that that sort of a spillover effect is one of the one of the better things that has happened in the past couple of years. Uh, taxi industry, at least in most Europe, from from what I know, did not innovate since they got cars on the streets. Um, exactly. Um, so now we are seeing some innovation. Obviously, it's not as good as it should be, but you do see smaller taxi companies trying to kind of. Uh, introduce an app or allow uh, paying via cards through an app or have some sort of a rating system even though I think that's what they're fighting the most they really I, for some reason drivers really do not like being rated because um, they're not nice to you that's what yeah, yeah, yeah they don't want to yeah. <laughs> in a regular taxi you've never seen one that's nice to me and that's uh, and I think that's, that, that's a big impact here. I think in any way, I really enjoyed this conversation. This is as much time as we have for this episode. Thank you so much to Alexander Kotovic, Jaroslavski, and Luca Bertoletti on, uh, on this special episode here in Tbilisi, Georgia. And uh, yeah, I've been your moderator and host, Bill Words, and uh, see you Thursday. Like everybody else. Pressure. You've all